Good morning again. If you would take your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we are looking at verse 11 through the first part of verse 13. When I started into Ephesians 1, I had this great three-part outline, the plan of God for the church, the price of the church, which we looked at next week, and then the protection of the church. And then I got to verses 11 to 13 and realized I got to add another little part in here. So today we have the praise of God in the church, that largely coming from verse 12 at the end, where it says, we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. If you were to ask a kid what his two favorite days of the year are, you would probably hear these two at the top of every list in some way, Christmas and his birthday. Why? Why those two things? Why those two things that are highlight a kid's year? Because those are two days of the year when he gets to receive gifts, right? You get to get things. Now, let's not just blame kids, right? Adults, because we like that too, don't we? We like to receive gifts, whether it's Christmas or, or a birthday or maybe Valentine's Day coming up in just two days, gentlemen. Tuesday is Valentine's Day, or maybe it's, it's a just-because gift, right? We like to receive a gift. There's something special about receiving a gift. And as we've looked through Ephesians 1 so far, this concept of, of a gift, of receiving a gift, kind of permeates everything that we have seen so far here in Ephesians 1. Paul is praising God. If you remember verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul is praising God for all the spiritual blessings that he's received in Christ. I kind of look at verses 3 through 14 as Paul's thank you note. He's writing a thank you note to God for all that he has blessed us with, all that he has received here. The goodness of God just radiates through these verses in the gifts that he has given to us. If you review some of these, you see in verse 4, you have the gift of being chosen in him before the foundation of the world, a gift of his grace because we couldn't have had to be of grace. We didn't and couldn't do anything to earn it. Verse 6, we see the gift of being made accepted in the beloved, being made accepted in Christ. We couldn't make ourselves acceptable. We had to be made acceptable. That's a gift of his grace. Verse 7, we see the gift of redemption and forgiveness through Christ's blood. John 3.16 tells us that, that God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give us? He gave us his son, whom through his shed blood we receive forgiveness and redemption. So this idea of a gift. Verse 9, just last week we saw that God gives us the gift of understanding the mystery of his will. We can understand the mystery of his will. God has revealed himself to us. Note, please, that's not something that he had to do. He chose to do that. He gave us a gift of revelation, the understanding of what God has revealed. Now, he hasn't revealed everything to us, but what the understanding of what he has revealed to us is a gift of his grace. Jesus said this, in fact, in Matthew 16, verses 15 to 17, just a great passage there. Jesus, if you remember there in Matthew 16, he asks his disciples, who do you think that I am? Who do you think that I am? And Peter gives this great response. Remember what he says? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, wow, Peter, you are smart. 
No, he doesn't. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, Peter did not figure out who Christ was on his own. He didn't. He didn't put together one of those big mystery boards you see in the Sherlock Holmes movies, right? Where it's got the pins and the strings and the, the pictures here and all this. And, and Peter's, you know, sitting in his room and he's putting all these things together. No. It says that, that God gave him the understanding of who Christ was. And what is that? A gift of his grace. You know, that's what we pray for every day. That's what I pray for in, in studying a message. And I hope you do as you hear a message. God, give me the, the understanding so that I can hear and understand what happens. That's what happened to Lydia in Acts 16, where it says God opened her heart to hear the things that Paul was speaking. Why does that have to happen? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot discern them. They are foolishness to him. But by God's grace, guess what? We have understanding. We can understand the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, of him, talking about God, so of God, we are in Christ Jesus. Of God, we are in Christ Jesus. Why? The next verse says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It's this right here. Why are you in Christ because of God? So that you give all the glory to God. So here in Ephesians 1, you see that God's gifts of grace to us are just a million fold. Just, you could just keep going and going. And that's what Paul does. Remember, it's one sentence in the Greek. And he kind of just keeps adding more, keeps adding more. These run-on sentences, he just keeps going. And we are to praise God for them now and always. Well, we come to verse 11, and we see another of the many gifts of God's grace. He says in verse 11, in him also, in him also, Paul's kind of like, oh, hey, hey, I just thought of another one. Here's another one. In him also, we have obtained an inheritance. In him also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. According to verse 11, one of the gifts we've been given in Christ is an inheritance in Christ. Well, what is an inheritance? What is an inheritance? Here, here in an earthly way, we would think of it as usually property or possessions of some sort that upon the parent's death pass on to the children. Right? It could, be, it could be land, it could be a house, a farm, a vehicle, a bank account, a trust fund of some sort that gets handed down upon the parent's death. Well, think about that for a second, an inheritance. Is that something we work for or we earn? It's not. We get it by nature of being born, right? By nature of being born into that family, you are set up for an inheritance. By, be, by nature of being born into the family of God, you are set up for a spiritual inheritance. Now, the English phrase here in verse 11 that says, we have obtained an inheritance, is actually just one word in the Greek, eklotheramen. It's the only place that it shows up in the New Testament. And it can actually be translated at least two different ways. All right, two different things that it can mean. One, it can mean we obtained an inheritance as it's translated here and probably in most, most versions or most translations that you have, it means we obtained an inheritance. But it can also mean that we were made an inheritance. 
We were made to be an inheritance by God. You say, what does that mean? It's got to be one or the other, right? No, it doesn't. Because actually both are accurate scripturally. We are, we, are both, we are both obtaining an inheritance and we have been made an inheritance. Think back to John 17. We are the inheritance of Christ because the Father has given us to the Son as a gift to the Son. We also obtain an inheritance in Christ. In essence, all of the blessings that are now, we see here in, in verses 3 to 14, and the blessings that will be ours in eternity. So both of those things can be true. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, help us to understand this. John Pinter was going through this in his Sunday school this morning, and it's amazing how 1 Peter 1 and Ephesians 1 overlap so much. But to help us understand this idea of obtaining an inheritance, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So you are both an inheritance to Christ and you have an inheritance awaiting you in glory. That's incredible. That's, can we say that's the best of both worlds? Both now and then? Now notice how Paul speaks of it here in verse 11. He says, we have obtained an inheritance. Yet a lot of the glory of our inheritance is still for us out there. Paul speaks with it, though, with absolute certainty as if it is already here. Why? Because there's no doubt that all those who are in Christ will be brought to the full realization of their inheritance. That's the security that we have in Christ. Your inheritance, you didn't earn it. Here's a good part about our spiritual inheritance. You don't have to wait until the father dies to get it. You would be waiting a very long time. You realize that? If you had to wait for, your, for, your, for the heavenly father to die in order for you to get your inheritance, good luck. You get it by being born into the family of God. You are made a joint heir with Christ, with your other brothers and sisters in Christ. And here we have this inheritance. It's just one of the manifold gifts of God's grace. Well, it says in verse 11, we have obtained it. We have to ask the question, how have we obtained it? How have we obtained any of the gifts that we have received? How have we obtained any of these things that have come to us? Well, there's two ways, two perspectives that Paul gives here, the end of verse 11, and then in verses 12 and 13 as well. The first thing he says, you've obtained this basically from God's perspective. Look at the last part of verse 11. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So from God's perspective, he says that according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, we were predestined to obtain it. Very similar to the wording in what we see up in verse 5. So God's eternal plan from before the foundation of the world included you receiving an inheritance in Christ. 
It's part of his decreed will for us. Now, I want to focus on the last phrase in verse 11, where it says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. I think that's extremely helpful in us understanding what that means. See, remember, God's God's work in our salvation now, according to this, his purpose is always been according to the counsel of his will, which has always been determined. Because remember, God sits outside of our limitations. He sits outside of our box of time. He doesn't get new information like we do. Therefore, God is never coming up with his will as he goes. His will has always, always been determined. It's always been established. See, there's, there's nothing in him that as he goes, he has to adjust. No, he already has it all in place. James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, the word of our God stands forever. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God's will, God's, what God is doing in this world, what God is doing in your life, he doesn't adjust that as he goes. It's, it's always been his will. And the key word in that phrase is verse 11. It's, it's purpose according to the purpose. What a great word. What God does, he does on purpose, according to his will. That's great. What God does, he does. uh, God always works with a purpose and on purpose. We just covered this this big series in uh, Esther, right? And you could say that's, that's one of the themes of the entire book, that what God did in the story of Esther was always on purpose. He put this person in place, knowing this was coming. He did this, knowing that that person was going to say this. He did this over. It was all according to his plan. It was completely providential and sovereignly ordained. God is never whimsical. He is never arbitrary. There is nothing haphazard in God. There is nothing, absolutely nothing left to chance. He always works now according to his eternal purpose that has been established. Here's the best part. You ready? Best part. You, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, are a part of the eternal purpose of God. That's powerful. You, chosen in him before the foundation, measly little me, right? You, none of us, we're not that great on our own. And yet God, because he has put us in Christ, has made us accepted, and he's made us a part of the eternal purpose of God. God's actions on your behalf today are him carrying out what he has always planned to do in you. He's working now according to his eternal purpose and his eternal plan. Psalm 139.16 tells us this. Psalm 139.16, it says, your eyes, he's talking, Psalmist talking about God, your eyes saw my substance yet being unformed. I wasn't even put together yet. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God is in control. So why do we obtain an inheritance? Because God works according to his perfect purpose 
that works out all things according to the perfect counsel of his will. This gift of salvation, the correlating blessings that we've seen throughout this, this Ephesians 1, it's all been done according to his plan and his desire to do so. That's salvation. That's obtaining our inheritance from God's perspective. He says that there in verse 11. Now, here's the point, right? Because we've talked about this a lot recently. Here's the point where someone may interject with a question, a very good question. You say, okay, I see God's perspective. I see God's plan. I see what he does. I have a question. What do I do? Where do I fit in this? What do I do? That's a great question. Since the focus of Ephesians 1 is God's actions on our behalf, and what God sovereignly does, it can seem like we are super passive in this whole process, right? God is, God does, God blesses, God gives. Do we do anything? Do we think? Do we act? Do we react? Well, what do we do? Are we just like a, a blob of slime that jiggles when it's touched? Or, or can I actually do anything? I hate slime. I hate silly putty, that stuff. Because I'm always the one, when the boys come home with it, that is the one who has to dig it out of the carpet. You've been there, dads. You, you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. If any of you ever give the boys for their birthday or something slime, it will be the last time I talk to you. But you have that, that little slime, right? And the guys play with it, and you stretch it out, and you do this, and you do that. But it does nothing on its own, does it? It just sits there. And if you poke it, it'll kind of go, and then it'll settle back down. And sometimes we can look at a passage like this, and up to this point in the passage, we think, okay, we've gone heavy on the sovereignty of God, right? The heavy on what God has done. Why? Because that's what the text tells us. God chooses, God predestines, God makes us accepted, God redeems and forgives, God reveals, God purposes all things. The text tells us about God's sovereignty. And if you're feeling at this point like a blob of slime that just jiggles when it's poked, these next verses are for you. Take heart. Because he's shown us this is from God's perspective, his sovereign control. And now he starts to tell us, verses 12 and 13, our response to that. So the first perspective is he predestines, he purposes according to his will. Here's the second one from the human perspective, verse 12, verse 13. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Here's the human perspective. You ready for it? We went through God's perspective. Here's the human perspective. He says, we, you, believe. You, trust. You, have faith. Our response finally shows up here in the text. It finally comes. What am I supposed to do this whole time? He says, believe. In response to God's work in you, God's work through you, God's work around you, what do you do? He says, trust him. Trust, we believe, and we therefore receive. The salvation promises and goodness of God are only ours by faith. You, you must have faith in Christ. That's your perspective. That's your side of things. For by grace, you are saved through 
faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He that believes is not condemned, but he that does not believe is condemned already. You have a responsibility to believe in Christ because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Salvation is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I invite you today, if you are lost in your sin today, and you are hearing the truth of the gospel, you must respond to that truth by faith. Throwing yourself at the feet of Christ, knowing that I cannot save myself, but I trust in what you have done. I trust in you for the forgiveness of my sins and the salvation of my soul. You can do that in your seat now. You can talk to somebody afterwards. You must come to faith in Christ. There's no magic formula. There's no thing that you have to do. There's no specific prayer that you have to pray. You simply turn yourself over to God and you say, I fall into your mercy. I fall into your grace. I am a sinner. Christ is perfect. He paid the way for me, and I trust him by faith. Faith in Christ is essential for every single person. Essential, absolutely essential for every single person, and Paul proves it. Look at verse 12. Paul says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now we or us in this passage is a very common theme. You look back through there, you're going to see we, you're going to see us several times. All right, and it's talking about the believers. But here in verse 12, the we is qualified by the next phrase. So he says, we who first trusted in Christ. Okay, who are the ones then that first trusted in Christ? Who Paul is referring to here in verse 12 is the Jewish people. He's referring to Jews. That's why he's part of the we, because he is a Jew. And in God's eternal plan of salvation, the Jews had first access to the gospel. It's just how God set it up to happen. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. See, the Jews received the blessings and opportunities of the gospel long before the Gentiles did. In fact, in Matthew 10, right after Jesus commissions his 12 apostles, he tells them, he says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? That was God's plan for salvation at that period of time. However, the Jews were not guaranteed salvation because they were Jews. Say, well, the gospel went to the Jews first, so the Jews are saved, and then it went. No, gospels, the, the Jews were not guaranteed salvation because they were Jews. They were offered the gospel first, and yet Paul reminds us here in verse 12 that they had to do what for salvation? Believe, trust, have faith in Christ. There are no free passes to heaven. Every single person must believe in Christ. There is no salvation outside of faith in Christ. 
It does not matter if you are Jew or Gentile, man or woman, rich or poor, tall or short, blue hair, pink hair, or no hair. You must believe in Christ. Paul tells us that. Now, the Jews, as you know, in large part rejected the gospel. Christ came unto his own, John 1, and his own did not receive him. Didn't want anything to do with him. Now, there was a remnant of Jews who believed. Remember, Paul was part of those. There's a few Jews here and there that did believe. Paul was a part of that remnant who believed. Now, did Paul look like he was going to be part of that remnant initially? Not at all. God's grace got a hold of him, and then he believed. Now, notice what Paul says here, verse 12. This is, this is a powerful phrase. He says that the Jews believed to the praise of his glory. We believed, we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. What a phrase. God gets the glory for salvation every time. Jews are saved to the praise of his glory. Gentiles are saved to the praise of his glory. Every single person is saved to the praise of his glory. It, it seems here in verse 12 that Paul is hinting at the reason that we are saved. The reason we are saved. Why are we saved? Why am I saved? You look at the answer every Sunday. It's right here to the praise of his glory. That's the reason you are saved. See, I'm not saved because I am so important. I think we get that mixed up sometimes. Well, it's because God just loved me so much and, and I, he just had to have me. No, you're saved to his glory. Not because you're important, but because he is important. Now, does God love you very much? Absolutely. But it's not about you. In your glory and how good you are, that's why God's, it's about his glory. That's why he saved me. That makes him the hero of the story, not me. I'm saved because of, God is glorified. Here's the best part. God is, I know I've said that like four times, so I think we have like four best parts now. I'm sorry. Just keep up with that. God is glorified every time someone is saved. Every single time someone is saved. Why? Because every saved person is an example of someone who didn't deserve it, couldn't earn it, but got it anyway. And who can get the glory from that except for God? You didn't deserve it. You couldn't earn it. But here we are. To God be the glory. It's the only, it's the only way we can describe it. If then, here's the next best part. If then we are saved to the praise of his glory and not our own it follows then that we should live to the praise of his glory and not our own. If it's true that we are saved to the praise of his glory, as it says in verse 12, and not to our own glory, it follows that we should live to the praise of his glory and not our own. See, our salvation, the power of the gospel in us does not just save us. It also energizes us and it energizes everything that we live for. It motivates everything that we do. The God who saved us is the God we live for. The Savior who saved us is the Savior we live for. Romans 6.13, he says, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we're supposed to do now. You say, well, what does that look like? 
And hopefully in your growth groups later, you can kind of talk through this. What does it look like for me to live to the praise of his glory? What does it look like in my daily life, in my work, in my relationship with my wife, with my family, my relationship with others, my job that I do, the school that I go to? What does it look like for me to live to the praise of his glory? What we do, we do for him, with him in mind, and not for ourselves. That's living to the praise of his glory. Colossians 3.23, it says, we work as unto the Lord and not unto men. If you're a teacher, teach to the praise of his glory. If you work at the hospital, work at the hospital, the praise of his glory. Go to church for the praise of his glory. Make dinner for the praise of his glory. Play with your grandkids to the praise of his glory. It permeates everything that we do, or at least it should. The God who saved us is the God who keeps us saved and is the God we live for while we are saved. We are saved to the praise of his glory and we live to the praise of his glory. Now in verse 13, we see the word you. So if the we in verse 12 is the Jews, it follows that the we in verse 13 is probably the Gentiles. So we first trusted, verse 12, that's the Jews, Then later in God's plan of salvation, he opens up the doorway to the Gentiles to believe. And he says in verse 13, in him you also trusted. So God providentially opens up the doorway to the gospel for the Gentiles. That happens in Acts chapter 10 through the story of Peter and Cornelius. Remember that that interaction there where where the gospel now is opened up and, and God calls the apostles. Paul himself is even called the apostle to the Gentiles. They are to go now to the Gentiles. You know what? I'm glad for that. Very glad for that. Extremely glad for that. That God in his providence and in his timing and his way has opened up the doorway for the the Gentiles to be brought in. We're going to talk about that later in Ephesians chapter 3. That's one of the mysteries that Paul reveals to us. How originally it looked like only the Jews were the people of God, but the mystery is that he brings in the Gentiles. He grafts them in, according to Romans. He grafts them in and brings them in as a part of the people of God. That's incredible. Something I'm very thankful for. But notice here, The way that the Jew and the Gentile come to salvation is not different. He says, we who first trusted and you also trusted. It is by faith in Christ. You must come to faith in Christ for salvation, whether you are Jew, verse 12, or whether you are Gentile, verse 13. Paul gives us though in verse 13, love this verse. He gives us even more insight into the process of salvation. All right, he kind of tells us a little bit more about how we go through this. Because what God has planned before time, he works out in time. And here's how he does it. Now notice this. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He says you trust, you believe after you hear the word of truth the gospel of your salvation. What does that sound like? It sounds like the word is essential to faith in Christ, doesn't it? 
Am I reading that wrong? It sounds like he's saying the word of God is absolutely essential to faith in Christ. Why must trusting in Christ come after hearing the word of truth, the gospel? Why is the word essential to salvation? Can someone be saved having not heard the word, having not heard the gospel? Maybe this is a one-off spot by Paul where he got a little confused. Well, Romans 10, 17, also written by Paul. Let's let Scripture clarify Scripture for us. He writes in Romans 10, 17, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Go in your Bibles to where we were for our Scripture reading. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the reason we read this passage earlier. 2 Timothy 3 Verse 14. Verse 14, he says, you, this is Paul talking to Timothy, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What a sentence. It is Holy Scripture that is able to make you wise for salvation. From the Word comes the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the need for salvation. Folks, in the Bible, salvation is never divorced from the Word. It's never separated from the the truth of the gospel. That's why I don't put a whole lot of stock into someone who says that they came to Christ through a vision or a dream or some sort of mystical experience. According to Scripture, and I've showed you three places so far, our coming to salvation is always connected to the real truth of Scripture. In Ephesians 1, he says, after you're hearing the word, the gospel of your salvation. So he's always tying that very closely. Somebody once told me that, He knew he was saved because his dad appeared to him in the corner of the room and told him he was okay. I don't buy that. Why? Well, it's absent the truth of Scripture. It's not the gospel. From the word is the knowledge of the truth. That's why the biblical writers, the prophets, and the preachers come along and proclaim thus says the Lord. That's why Paul in this, he goes through this. He says that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. Then verses 16 and 17, he talks about scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Don't stop reading at the end of chapter three because he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Why the word? Because through the word is the knowledge of salvation. It's not divorced from each other. Salvation coming to Christ is not some mystical experience where we just check our brain at the door and let God take over. No, no, no. It's something that he reveals to us through his word. And we see the truth of scripture and God opens our hearts and we believe what we see. Thus says the Lord. The word means everything to us. It means everything to our faith. 
Therefore, preach the word. Without the word, we would not know that we are completely helpless to earn our salvation. Without the word, we would not even know that we need salvation. Without the word, we would not know of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Without the word, we would not know of faith in Christ. Without the word, we would be ignorant concerning the things of God. We must have the word. And here's the greatness of the grace of God again. He didn't have to reveal his word to us. He didn't have to. Nothing that painted him into a corner that said, you have to give us 66 books. He's chosen to. That's the grace of God. He also didn't have to give us the ability to understand it, but he chose to. He has chosen to give us the ability to understand it. Because remember, apart from God and him making us alive, we cannot understand the word. And if you cannot understand the word, according to what we've just said, you will not come to salvation. And because remember 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit of God. Jesus told Peter that flesh and blood cannot figure these things out. They have to be revealed to you. So God supernaturally opens our eyes and hearts to the scriptures so that we can believe in him. The fact that we have the word and the word brings us to faith in Christ, that's a gift. See how we've come full circle again? Understanding the word is a gift of God's grace. Believing in Christ is a gift of God's grace. No wonder salvation is to the praise of his glory. No wonder it's all about him. We sang the song earlier, praise him, praise him. Tell of his excellent greatness. In 1721, a young man in Massachusetts was struggling to understand the things of God. But when he read 1 Timothy 1.17, God illuminated his heart for the first time, and it led him to his conversion. Here's the verse that God used in this man's heart. 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That doesn't even sound like a salvation passage. Does it? Well, it's not, it's, it's not one we would go to, right? Hey, let me show you the plan of salvation. Let's turn first to 1 Timothy 1. But here's what the man says about Scripture and how God used that Scripture in his life. He says this, As I read the words, there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I have ever experienced before. I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be as it were swallowed up in him forever. It was the truth of scripture that brought belief to that young man's heart. That man, Jonathan Edwards, became one of the foremost theologians in American history. Through the power of the word, God brings him to salvation. Folks, God does a work in us through his word, through his power, and he draws us to believe in Christ. And we are to do what? Praise him for it. To the praise of God's glory. Let's pray.